one of the greatest burden that I have in my prayer is for young parents who are bringing up children these days. I try to stay up with what's going on and from generation to generation and what's going on with this particular young generation, and I'm absolutely amazed at how the challenges and the temptations seem to accelerate with every successive generation. Those of us who have been at it for a long time can testify to the fact that the hardest and the most challenging part of parenting, it's really the most challenging part of any leadership at all, but particularly leadership in the home among parents, is to set the example, is to model for them. The ability to preach at them is easy. It's easy even to be willing to instruct them in the Word of God in comparison. It could be even the investment of time that is needed. But the hardest by far and the most difficult in leading, particularly in the home, is setting the example, is sowing the seed of modeling for them. I am a father who's conscious of his own mistakes, but thank God for my wife who covered up for all my deficiencies. But in all seriousness, I can do all of the preaching that there is. And after all, I'm a professional. I can do that. (laughs) But the seeds that are planted by example, that is the one that produces the greatest harvest of all. Back in 1990, I remember when our kids were teenagers, and this particular man's kids were teenagers, and, and we were talking one day, and he said to me, he said, Now, Michael, you've got to understand... Kids have to sow their wild oats. And I remember thinking at the time, and I turned around and I said, but just remember, they're not going to harvest strawberries (laughs) if they sow wild oats. In fact, back then in the early 90s, a young man and his girlfriend were both seniors in high school. One night, they were out on a date and became involved in a terrible car accident. The young man was killed, and his high school sweetheart, who was a very popular 17-year-old, was severely injured. The night when the young man came to the door to pick her up, he began to chat, conversation with the parents. And the girl's mother caught some secret signal that her daughter passed on to the young man that She couldn't understand what it was, and she never asked what it was. And so when the mom went to bed that night, she tossed and she turned and she tossed and she turned, and and she kept asking herself, I wonder what that was. And soon after midnight, that dreaded phone call came with the terrible news. The girl's parents immediately rushed into the hospital, and when they got there, they discovered that The couple had been drinking and driving, and there was an empty liquor bottle in the car. And the father went into a rage. He said, if I ever find out who gave liquor to these kids, I'll kill him. But then the parents eventually returned home in the early hours of the morning. They were exhausted. They were drained. They were tired. But they were too shaken to go to sleep. 
And so the father went to his liquor cabinet and to get a drink to take the edge off. And when he opened his own liquor cabinet, he found a note that his daughter left in the place of the missing bottle. Here's what the note said. Dad, if you find this note, please don't get mad. We just borrowed the bottle to have a good time. Love you. XO, XO. The father was mad at himself, to say the least. He was devastated. Who could he punish when the liquor bottle came out of his own cabinet? Beloved, I know it is not easy bringing up children in this culture. It's not easy to get kids to listen to our advice. It's not easy to get them to accept our guidance. It's not easy for them to buy into our belief system and our values. And It's not easy. But the greatest and the most challenging task of all is to sow the seeds of example. Of course the children need to be instructed. Of course they need to receive direction. Of course they need to be taught the Word of God. Of course they need to hear our testimony of faith so they can strengthen their faith. But by far, by far the greatest influence is that of example. By far the healthiest seed to plant in their lives is that of example. By far the finest investment that you can make in their lives is modeling for them. Today we come to this last in the series of messages entitled God Freedom from the Epistle to the Galatians. And here the Apostle Paul basically builds that conclusion on a wonderful principle, a principle that is as true as God in heaven himself is true, sowing and reaping. You cannot sow bad habits and reap good character. You cannot sow bitterness and hatred and expect to reap love and friendship. You cannot sow dissipation and overindulgence and reap healthy body. You cannot sow deception and reap confidence. You cannot sow neglect to the Word of God and then want to reap well-ordered life. Look with me, please, at chapter 6. I have divided this chapter into three sections of sowing different seeds. In the first five verses, he tells us about sowing seeds of relationship, good seeds in our relationship with one another. And then in verses 6 to 10, he tells us about sowing good seeds into our own life, in our conduct, in our walk with Christ. And thirdly, In verses 11 to 18, he talks about sowing seed of standing firm on the truth of the Word of God. And no matter who compromises, you stand firm and refuse to compromise. Sowing good seeds for our relationship with one another. It is an impossibility to live the Christian life in isolation. It is an impossibility. You cannot survive any more than you take a log of fire out of the fireplace and set it aside by itself. A Christian life must be lived in community. Long time ago, I saw this cartoon. I don't read the cartoons anymore, but I used to because I used to learn a lot from them. 
and the ones that really fascinated me the most were the peanuts. And in one of those that stuck with me through all these years, maybe nearly 20 years now, is when Lucy asked Charlie Brown and said, um, why are we here on earth? And Charlie Brown, always the wise man, he said, uh, to make other people happy. Well, she pondered that for a moment, and then she asked, then why are other people here? And Paul says that it is the responsibility of the spiritually minded believers to gently endeavor to help those who have fallen into sin. Remember I told you a few messages ago? The question is not how you fell or how a person fall, but what you do when you fall. That's really the important question. And when a Christian falls in transgression, it is the responsibility of those who are mature, for those who are spiritual, to restore him or to restore her. I'm only too aware of the fact that there are some people who refuse to be restored. At that point, your responsibility has ended. But I want you to notice here in verse 1, the word caught. Someone, if someone is caught, what does that mean? It's an important choice of word on the part of the apostle because it does not refer to somebody who is deliberately, somebody who is habitually, somebody who is without any contrition, sinning without conviction. The word here is referring to someone who is caught off guard, someone who has flirted with sin and says, oh, I'll never fall, as often the case they do. This is someone who is trying to live the Christian life by their own hard work, by their power, by their own strength, and as always the case, they fall. Uh, This is someone who has been deceived by false belief system, by false teaching, and then they fill. When that happens, the Apostle Paul said, those who are mature in the faith, they need to start sowing the seed of restoration in the life of that individual. The word restore also is an important word. It is borrowed from the medical world back then from the Greek language. It is a word that is used when a doctor sets a broken bone. It's a word that's used when a doctor puts a dislocated limb back in its place. Verse 2. Carry each other's burden, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. He returns to the central theme of the whole epistle, namely, grace and spirit versus the law. Spirit-filled life versus legalism. Spirit-filled Christian always help people take off the load off people. A legalist always adds to the loads and the burdens of people. Because in his faithful ministry, the Apostle Paul himself felt burdened. (laughs) He was so 
devastated at times. He experienced adversity. He experienced discouragement. He experienced deep concern for other people and then watching, and his heart literally broken over them. And all of that used to weigh him down. It weighed him heavily, and therefore he did not need a bunch of Judaizers to come in and load on him. He wanted somebody to encourage him. And so he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly verses 5 and 6, talking about his discouragement. He said, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed on every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears from within, but God who comforts the downcast comforts us. How? Listen carefully, because this is important. By the coming of Titus. By the coming of Titus. Listen to me, beloved. There is a time in each of our lives when we all need a Titus in our life. There are the times when you need to be a Titus to somebody else. And that is why verse 3, Paul said in Galatians 6, he said, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Now listen, this doesn't fit very well with our egalitarian, what do you mean I'm nothing? (laughs) Don't call me nothing. I'm somebody. I'm something, right? He is saying, if we do not lift another's burden, if we think that we are too high and mighty to lift the burden of others, if we are too full of ourselves to stoop down and lift somebody's burden, then we have an inflated opinion of ourselves. And that is why he said, don't compare yourself with others. Comparing yourself with somebody else is going to do one of two things. Either you're going to get depressed, or you're going to have an inflated ego. I'll tell you how it works. You compare yourself with somebody who's far better than you, you're going to get depressed. You choose somebody who's really having a hard time, and you compare yourself with them, and you're going to feel, man, I'm a big shot. (laughs) I'm not as bad as he or she. That's why he said, don't compare yourselves with each other. God does not compare us with one another. God does not come to me and say, why don't you be like so-and-so? Why don't you like be like so-and-so? Now, parents sometimes make that mistake, and it's a terrible mistake, when they tell their children, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? It's a horrible mistake. But listen to me. Long time ago, I came to the conclusion there is always going to be somebody who's better than me in every aspect of life. And as long as you understand, as long as you get to the point of say, look, there's always going to be a better doctor. There's always going to be a better lawyer. There's always going to be a better worker. There's always going to be a better preacher. There's always going to be a better business leader. When you do that, you'll be at peace. And always plant good seeds in your relationship with each other. Plant good seeds, secondly, in your own personal conduct. Look at verses 6 all the way to 10. And here comes this principle I told you about. It's, it's as real and as true as God himself is true. If a farmer wants a harvest, then he must go to the trouble of telling the soil. Nurturing the soil, 
planting the seed, watering the seed. I mean, and then harvesting diligently. And here's something else a farmer knows, that if he wants cotton, he ain't going to plant wheat. And then sits back and says, well, I really want cotton. He can't do that. You get what you plant. If you plant wheat, you get wheat. If you plant cotton, you get cotton. (laughs) Another thing a farmer knows, that is if he wants a rich harvest, he's got to plant generously, not sparingly. Listen, I know through the years I've met people who kind of nickel and dime God, and, and then they said, why am I not blessed? Why God is not he said, if you want to plant, want to harvest, you sow generously. But this principle works spiritually as well. I know this is a hard principle for modern America. I really do. I do understand it. I mean, we are living in a time of everything has got to be instant, instant news, instant quick weight loss, instant this and instant messaging. I mean, everything is instant. But farming is not an instant business. Everything has got to be quick now. That doesn't work that way with God. Years ago, I saw a sign that says, Antiques, manufactured while you're waiting. (laughs) I said, that's about said it all. There are some people who join a gym, and they go for two weeks working hard. I mean, putting in the hours. And two weeks later, they look, and they don't look like uh, whatever they want to look like. (laughs) And they get discouraged. Think about this. It just takes time. It takes time. There are some people who tithe for a couple of months and say, Oh, God hasn't blessed me. Isn't Malachi said, you open the windows of heaven, and he'll bless you if you tithe? Read my lips. Try the slot machine. You'll get a better odds than that. God is not talking about this instant stuff. God says you keep on doing, you keep on sowing, you keep on sowing, you keep on sowing. And then in due course, you're going to reap a harvest. Harvesting and sowing and reaping requires patience, perseverance, long-suffering. A farmer does not sow the seed, and then two weeks later, He said, I wonder how that seed is doing. So he goes up and digs the soil to look and see how the seed is doing. Now listen, even a city slicker like me knows that it doesn't work that way. There is a season for sowing. There is a season for growing. There is a a season for harvesting. And the Apostle Paul said, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. There's some people, I've seen it with those two eyes, they honestly think that they can outwit God. Don't sneer at God. Don't think that you can violate God's principles with impunity and get away with it. It will not work. And that is why sowing and reaping is an eternal principle. Now, this is important. I don't want you to miss what I'm going to tell you. Our character is shaped by our conduct. And our conduct is shaped by our choices that we make. Do you choose to obey or do you choose to do it yourself? You sow a thought. You reap an action. You sow an action. You reap a habit. 
You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap destiny. This is another way of what the Apostle Paul is saying, that if you sow to the flesh, you will reap confusion. You're going to reap pain. But if you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap well-ordered life. Verses 9 and 10, Paul assures us that the Christian life that is lived in the Spirit, the Christian life in which Christ is being formed in us, the Christian life is not a spectator sport. Everyone expected to be a player. Every believer is a minister of God's grace. Every believer is a sharer of the good news. But also Paul is realistic enough to know that in serving, in giving, even though it is in gratitude to God, still you get weary, you get tired. And I can testify to the fact that it took me years to learn this lesson. There are times when I am down emotionally, spiritually, for whatever reason, or physically at times. Those are the times when the devil lines up all his guns, all of them, not just some of them, all of them, and he starts shooting at you. He will shoot at you when you're tired, when you're emotionally and spiritually exhausted, and he starts shoot at you. And he does it differently with different people. I mean, you got it differently from mine, I'm sure. Uh, because when he attacks me, he tells me that I'm shadow boxing, that I'm just wasting my time. Nobody's listening. No one is impacted. Nobody cares. It's entertainment where it's at right now. Nobody concerned about biblical truth anymore. You're just wasting your breath. But then when the Lord picks me up, I line my guns against on him. And I start shooting on him without mercy. I remind him very quickly that I am on my way to heaven where I'm going to reign and rule with Christ. But he's going to the lake of fire where he's going to suffer for eternity. I remind him that in heaven I'm going to see thousands of people have been rescued from sin and eternal judgment because of the preaching of the gospel while he and his demons are going to suffer for eternity. You don't have to be a theologian to realize that he does not like to be reminded of his future, and he flees. You sow good seeds in relationships. You sow good seeds in personal life and conduct. Verses 11 to 18, you sow good seeds of standing on the truth of the Word of God no matter what. Obviously, right at this point, the Apostle Paul does something that is not normally done. In that culture, when a person is dictating a letter to the scribe and the scribe is writing it, the normal thing to do is at the end of the letter, when it's finished, he takes the pen from the scribe and signs his name. But here, with Galatians, he's dealing with a unique problem. And so, before he finishes the letter, he grabs the pen from the scribe and he writes the last paragraph. And he writes it all in caps. (laughs) Big letters. Want to make sure that they can see it. Why? To emphasize the principle of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he ends where he began. The secret power for Christian life. And the secret power for Christian life 
does not come from legalism, does not come from rituals. The secret power does not come from the external appearances, how people think of me, what they think of me, how do I come across. The secret power of the Christian living is the inner filling of the Holy Spirit. The secret power of the Christian life is in growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. It is Christ being formed in us. It is in the manifesting of the fruit of the Spirit. It is living by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and what that cross represents. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. The more legalistic a person is, (laughs) the less spiritual he is. The more externally focused the person is, <laughs> the less inwardly victorious that person is. Listen to me. No one in the whole world would have understood this than the Apostle Paul himself. This is not something he learned in a book. This is something he lived. This is something he experienced. Because he lived in both worlds. He experienced both worlds. He understood the realities of both worlds. He knew the deadly effect of rituals and legalism, but he also experienced the great joy of the power that comes from freedom in Christ. Verse 15, the secret of the power is not in any ritual or religion or circumcision or keeping of this law, the other law. The secret of power is not in the external appearances. The secret of power is not outward exhibition. No, no, no. The secret of power is not showing off. He says, the secret of power is the change of the heart that only Christ can bring about. The change of the conduct that only when Christ being formed in us can bring about. The transformation of character that only yielding to the Holy Spirit can bring about. The secret of power is how you view the cross. And he's not talking about the piece of wood that represents the cross or the ornament, gold ornament that you wear. He is talking about how you view what Christ did on the cross. How do you see it? It will make all the difference in the world. It will make the difference between living in victory and living in defeat. How do you see the cross? Thank you, Lord. You died for me, so now I can live any which way I want. How do you see the cross? Do you see it as a complete and finished work of Christ? Needs no more to be done on your part or anybody's part. When you look at the cross of Christ, what do you see? When you reflect on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what do you think? How do you live? Now, beloved, listen to me. There are some Christian teachers who teach that on the cross, God did His part. But you have to do your part. Some even go as far as to say that your part is just as important as God's part, if not more important, because that work of the cross is not complete unless you complete it. That's taught in churches. That attitude says that the cross is not complete, that the work of salvation is not finished on the cross. And Paul is saying that's falsehood. Don't fall for it. Don't buy into it. Don't get sucked in with this type of false teaching. It is contrary to Scripture from cover to cover. For on the cross, God did all that needed to be done. All of it. 
And all you need to do is repent and stretch your hand and receive forgiveness and eternal life. And then live the rest of your life serving, giving, sacrificing. Why? It's out of gratitude, thanksgiving. Nothing I could do that could have given me what Christ did on the cross, and therefore I do what I do in thanksgiving to what He has done for me. I want to conclude by telling you a story about a man who did exactly this, exactly this. He was a very wealthy German count by the name of Zinzendorf. And one day he was traveling from Germany to Paris. This young man, full of health, full of wealth, and he was on his way to the French capital to spend both. And on the way to Paris, he came to a city of Dusseldorf, which is famous for an art gallery that has some of the great works of the great masters of art. And so he stopped. He said, well, I go inside for an hour or two just to look and admire the artwork in this particular gallery. And so he comes in and he walks through and admiring these magnificent paintings, admiringly. But then he comes to one particular painting, and he is transfixed, literally almost like he's been physically paralyzed. And not only he was transfixed by the picture, the painting of Christ on the cross, but also the inscription at the bottom of the painting. For when Steinberg painted this particular painting, he wrote at the bottom the following words. All this I did for you. What have you done for me? This young rich count at that very moment went on his knees in front of that painting and surrendered his life to the Christ of the cross. He abandoned his travel plans. He returned home. And there he consecrated himself to the service of the one who did it all for him. As a matter of fact, he founded the Moravian Missionary Movement, one of the great missionary movements. And it was members of the Moravian Missionary Movement led John Wesley to Christ, the founder of the Methodist Church. On the cross, he completed and finished the work of salvation. We cannot add to it. We cannot subtract from it. But in gratitude, you serve him for what he had done. I was about to finish, but I know there is a curious sentence here at the end that has a lot of people kind of wondering what does that mean. And, and literal translation is this. Even the new Israel of God. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about the nation of Israel? Is he talking about the, the Jewish believers? Talking, what's the new Israel of God? As we have been seeing here, when he taught 
that it is one offspring, not offsprings. It is Christ who fulfilled all of the promises to Abraham. Here he's talking about the new Israel of God, which made up of Jews and Gentiles who both came and surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what the New Testament church is all about. It is made up of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe, and that includes you and me. What a great honor to belong to the new Israel of God. But I'm aware of the fact there may be somebody visiting with us today who has never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, never looked at that cross and said, million lifetimes I could not have accomplished what He accomplished on that cross. He died for me to redeem me from my sin. Today, as we go to prayer, why don't you say, Lord Jesus, you came from heaven. You died on a cross. You rose again. I've been into religion, and I've been into church, and I've been into all these things, but now I understand. That's what you did on the cross. That's really matter. And the Bible promised that the moment you pray that prayer, God will answer you. Shall we pray together? If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never repented, you've never understood what it means to have the gift of eternal life, salvation here and now, eternity forever with Christ, today you can repeat those words in the privacy of your own mind and heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I come to you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. You died for me. You rose again to assure me of eternal life with you. I receive that. I accept that to be for me. No, precious Heavenly Father, I pray for every one of us who have known you, known your Son as Savior for a long time, that we've got so accustomed to the thought that we're saved and sanctified and sit back and do nothing. Remind us afresh that it is the sowing and the reaping after salvation. Father, help us to sow good seeds in our relationships. Help us to sow good seeds in our own lives and conduct. Father, help us to sow good seeds of the truth of the Word of God in our lives. The psalmist said, I hid your word in my heart so that I would not sin against you. Let that be a transforming moment to all of us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.